0: Dr. Emanuel Pastor is a professor of sociology and American studies and ethnicity at the University of Southern California. His new book, State of Resistance, What California's Dizzying Descent and Remarkable Resurgence Mean for America's Future, makes the argument that California's experience could inform the next swing of the national political pendulum.
1: Well, I think, you know, know, what we try to argue in this book, State of Resistance, Mm -hmm. is that in large, you know, in many ways, United States just had its Prop 187 moment Uh, That's the proposition that passed In 1994 In California That sought to deny Services to undocumented immigrants Including educational services To undocumented children Sort of eerie parallels Of today's uh, Family separations Um, And in that period of time uh, It wasn't just that California was having a reaction to immigration. Half of the country's net job losses in the recession of the early 1990s occurred in California, Mm -hmm. and people forget that Rush Limbaugh began his talk radio career here in California in Sacramento in the late 1980s. So this kind of combination of demographic anxiety focused on immigration, economic uncertainty, and profiteering from political polarization. California did it first, did it hard,
0: did it early. Yeah. But all is, like, these propositions, like death by a thousand propositions in California, uh, how, how did the whole proposition
1: thing start? Well, you know, it started actually as a result in the early uh, part of the 20th century as a reform around direct democracy, mm-hmm. the idea that citizens should be able to put propositions on the ballot. In order to change the course of policy at a state level. Uh, but what people began to realize is that with enough money, you could write up almost any kind of proposition mm. uh, and pay for people to collect signatures and put it on the ballot. Yeah. And it became a way to, for example, in 1994, mm. it was a way for Governor Pete Wilson, who was 20 points behind mm. in the uh, polls behind Kathleen Brown, to use that proposition as a way to. Up fears to anger people and to mobilize people to vote, so it's become at times more of a gimmick than an expression of
0: direct democracy. Yeah, the plebiscites are not always uh, the best. Well, the British learned that, I think, with Brexit, let's put it up to a vote. You know, is it depends who controls uh, you know, everything around that vote. I think,
1: well, there's that, and then there's also whether or not the voters are uh, simply having a sort of a spasm of uh, <laughs> misery, which is kind of what happened with Brexit. Yeah. A lot of people. Uh, 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 sort of to not appreciate or uh, felt bad about those votes uh, once they were in. The interesting thing, though, is that it's also propositions in the last couple of years in California that have really turned the corner. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Prop 30 in the year 2012 mm-hmm. uh, was a proposition that raised taxes on uh, the wealthy in order to try to close our deficit in the state. Uh, Prop 47, two years later, put on the ballot, was a proposition to defelonize almost all drug use, and it's allowed us to begin de-incarcerating our uh, prisons. So uh, a lot of progressives and people wanting social change in a more liberal direction have now learned how to use the proposition mechanisms as well to make change.
0: So they've actually usurped the problem, which is what you argue in the book as a, as a whole, basically that uh, progressives need to do the same things that conservatives have been doing so well since, what, the, since the, the Reagan years nationally.
1: Well, the, you know, the Reagan years were sort of the uh, parents of the conservative work. Mm-hmm. Uh, before then, conservatives have done a great job about getting an authentic base. For example, in the evangelical church, trying to run values-driven campaigns uh, that really appeal to people, uh, trying to really push the envelope on policy change, and trying to start at the local level, school boards, city councils, build their way up to state legislatures, and then eventually to the presidency. That's what progressives need to do right now, in on values, those kind of values that came up during the course of this Weak with the reaction to the Trump administration separating children from their parents at the border. Mm-hmm. Uh, try to do those grassroots campaigns that start at a local level and build their way up. You know, interesting thing when people ask me about this book, they say mm-hmm. it must have been in response to the election. Mm-hmm. And I say yes, but it was in response to the, another election, not the one you're thinking about. In 2008, when Barack Obama got elected to the presidency, a lot of people who were liberals or progressives. Sort of bum rushed Washington thinking that if they went to Washington they could make policy change. Mm-hmm. When instead what they should have done is go back to the grassroots and do the kind of community organizing right. that could provide wind to Obama's sales when he was right or to hold him accountable when he was wrong. And into that vacuum stepped the Tea Party. The Tea Party was certainly astroturfed in, that is paid for by the Koch brothers. But on the other hand, it really represented sort of grassroots organizing and anger, how what was going on with the economy in the country. So this book really began as an appeal to get back to doing community organizing, base building, as a way of thinking about how do you change the
0: United States. Yeah. And maybe back to this, the, the old the chicken in every pot kind of philosophy of the ward healers back in the old days, I know that's rather a, maybe a crude way of, of saying but of, of involving people, I mean, getting working people involved uh, in decisions that affect. I, it seemed, <clears throat> The thing that always has amazed me or bothered me is the fact that so many working class people would, would uh, support uh, a candidate like a Trump who had, had, had absolutely nothing for them except, I mean, he's, here's a guy who doesn't even pay his workers, you know,
1: well, you know, one of the things I think uh, that, you know, again, sort of comes out in this book is when we think about California, uh, you know, the simple explanation, there's many different things that went wrong in California. Uh, but, and, you know, basically what we try to argue is that race and racism got the better of us. That is, we started passing these propositions to push out undocumented or to eliminate bilingual education or. To uh, eliminate affirmative action, uh, to divide people. And that kind of took our eye off the ball of trying to get the economy performing in a way that would really deliver benefits for everyone. There's a lot of people who think that the so called Trump voter is somehow voting against their interests. They might be voting against their economic interests. But they're being appealed to on the basis of their racial identity interest, oh, yeah. Yeah. the idea that there's fear about sort of the changing United States. Mm-hmm. So I think it's been really crucial in California
0: that organizers
1: have talked about racial justice. They tried to be consciously building ties between communities. They tried to do something, Michael, that Americans find it very difficult to do hold two ideas in your head at the same time. Mm-hmm. One is that race matters in the way that people's lives are experienced and structure, and the other is that class and the economy matters, and that we need to kind of bring those two things together.
0: Yeah, and that, that's maybe the most difficult challenge, right, because you get all these groups that have some common interest, but some that are specific to that to the, to group.
1: Um, yeah, but I believe that there's a kind of way to weave that together as it really comes from people working together and developing the, the practice of dealing it. So, you know, I think uh, while California looks, Looked in the 1990s like America looks today: lots of racial division, uh, tremendous economic uncertainty, lots of political polarization. You know, now it's a state that has raised its minimum wage to fifty dollars an hour, one of the first two states to do that. It's a state which is trying to reduce the size of the prison population. It's proudly deca- declared itself to be a sanctuary state. By which is meant that there's a lack of cooperation with immigration and customs enforcement uh, for people who uh, have been caught up in minor offenses in the criminal justice system. Um, it's moving ahead on climate change, et cetera. And you can look at California as an oddity, and I know in the rest of California, the United States, it's kind of fun to do that because you could just imagine us being hippies with our hot tubs, uh, often, you know. Uh, never, never land. But this is the fifth largest economy in the United States. It receives more than 50% of the country's venture capital. Um, it's ahead on dealing with climate change. It's ahead on so much. And the demographic change in the United States between two thousand and twenty fifty and is the demographic change that California went through between 1980 and 2000. We went through those bumps that the United States is going through right now. There's a sort of a little bit of light at the end of that uh, political tunnel. And I think there's a lot to learn from looking at the California experience. Yeah.
0: It's the fifth largest economy in the world, right?
1: That's correct, yes. Yes.
0: Uh, um, This last election, um, Bernie Sanders was was hitting a a lot of the right notes for, for people uh and didn't get to it obviously but it didn't seem to me that there was anything that came of it afterwards in other words i don't i didn't i know there's some attempts to organize like you know a bernie sanders sort of uh party and get people organized and get on the streets and go you know get the word out that's been true here in wisconsin but it's not it's very it's not really caught on i don't think i I, that could have been an opportunity
1: um Yes, it could have. And the inter- you know the interesting thing about the uh, 2016 elections is that the uh, two candidates who caught on were the most polar opposites. That is Donald Trump, who got on with the base he got on with, and Bernie Sanders, who really resonated with a younger and more progressive group. You know, in both cases, uh, each of those two candidates had a sort of clear economic message. For Donald Trump, there was you know less immigrants. Less trade, more jobs. Uh, pretty short, pretty succinct. I think wrong, but uh, at least it was appealing. For Bernie Sanders, it was a message around how the growing inequality in the country had, was preventing us from really generating an economy that would work for everyone. Mm-hmm. Pretty succinct. It's pretty hard to know what uh, the economic program of Hillary Clinton was, and so it's not surprising that things didn't catch on. Since the election, though, I think uh, it's, you know, it's not clear that things have been channeled into, as you mentioned, something institutional coming out of the Sanders uh, campaign. What is interesting is that there's been this kind of rising up uh, that was reflected in the two women's marches. That's been reflected in the reaction to the separation of children from their parents at the border in the last week or so by the uh, Trump campaign. Presidency, and there's a way in which some fundamental values of, you know, kindness and decency and solidarity with other people have been reflected in those movements. The interesting question is going to be whether or not those get channeled into actual political power, and these coming upcoming uh, November to uh, 2018 midterm elections will be crucial in that regard. Yeah, and
0: and as you mentioned, the crossing over from one issue to someone else with a similar with a different issue but maybe similar ground.
1: Yes, I think there's that. And then I also think that it's really crucial for people to be paying attention to the local and state elections as well. You know, one thing that uh, in that period between 2008 and 2016, when I talked about how, you know, progressives should have turned their attention to community organizing rather than policy tinkering, uh, 900 seats in state legislatures and state Senates passed from Democratic hands to Republican hands, mm-hmm. so it's really crucial to be paying attention to local elections. For example, in these uh, uh, off-season uh, state state uh, the assembly elections, state legislature elections in uh, Virginia, there were enough Democrats elected; it's still a Republican majority in their state assembly that it changed the political dynamics enough that Virginia uh, became a state that finally expanded Medicaid uh, to be able to cover as part of the Obamacare rollout to be able to cover more uh, working adults. That's making a huge difference in people's lives at a local level, and that was because people focused it on local and state elections. So it's, you know, the congressional elections are important, the presidential elections are important, but if you really want to take a page from the right wing, or you want to take a page from what progressives did in California, you need to build power and make change at a local level.
0: Mm -hmm. And you need to get money behind you, too, as well, don't you?
1: Um, Yes, and I think that's going to be a challenge, because the uh, Koch brothers uh, apparently are willing to put in hundreds of billions of dollars into this upcoming election, Um, and many of the sort of richest liberals are tinkering at the edges with that. It's an unfortunate truth of our... uh, electoral system, that money is incredibly important to uh, getting the vote out there. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. We're in an unusual point in our history, I think. It, it, it always,
0: you know, I always say the middle must hold in a democracy. And the middle has seemed to, to disappear, that it's, it's not holding. It's been stretched so thin that they're virtually they're so divided, they're so, there's no middle. And, and in the middle where you can come to, to the whole idea of compromise on anything by any parties has been lost. So are we we beyond a kind of salvation here?
1: Well, I think not. I mean, I will say that one of the things to realize is that when you say the middle is gone, you're talking politically. But another part of that is that the middle has disappeared economically. Mm -hmm. And until we actually deal with the economic pieces that can create a little hope for people to kind of move into the middle class and stay in the middle class, That's what helps to create a kind of anchor for our politics as well, because when people feel like they're being sorted by class and by race, they're going to be a lot less likely to come together, uh, in terms of the politics as well. But, you know, I'm an eternal optimist, and I think that's, you know, partly being the son myself of an immigrant, in fact, an undocumented immigrant who came to the United States, uh, without papers and then was given a choice between being deported or joining the U.S. Army to fight in World War II, and that's how he found his path to legalization and how I went up. So I think sons of immigrants, daughters of immigrants, tend to be optimistic by nature. But I'm also optimistic because I was in California during the 90s, and I know what this TV show looks like, Mm -hmm. and I know how horrific it can be in the middle of it, but I also know what it can look like at the end. That end does not happen automatically. I think there's a tendency to think that somehow simply because the demographics continued to change in California, that that's the reason why the politics changed. But it really wasn't that. It was people who sort of uh, dug in, understood that they needed to move from protest to proposal, needed that they needed to move from organizations that were marching to candidates that were running, and that they needed to move from a politics of uh, simply... Uh, uh trying to cap you know, capture the middle by moving to the middle, uh and instead try to move the middle with a different kind of narrative. One of the expressions we use, which I think is really critical, perhaps for this national moment, is that in California people stopped chasing the electorate and started working on changing the electorate. So rather than going after that elusive Trump voter who you think maybe someday you could bring on your side. How do you mobilize all of the people who are not registered, not voting, not engaged, to try to give them some uh, meaning and reason to be engaged? And if you can change the electorate by mobilizing that population, then I think a lot of this change can happen. And hopefully in the ways that you're talking about that is that, you know, there's plenty of reasonable disagreements about what, an immigration system should look like, how many people should be let in, uh, whether or not we should have a family-based system or a merit-based system, etc. Uh, that's a different debate than whether or not you should enforce the law by yanking children away from their parents. That is uh, st- cruelty masquerading as strength. Yeah.
0: And, you know, who isn't the son of a... Of, of an immigrant or the grandson or the, even the great-grandson. Certainly the Trumps are, are no different than the rest of us in that regard. It's, it's, it's absurd.
1: It is, and I uh, think that uh, we really need to kind of return to that uh, narrative of uh, America as a place of opportunity. You know, the Trump narrative is fundamentally pessimistic about the United <laughs> States it somehow thinks that the injection of new people and new ideas are going to threaten who we are rather than invigorate who we are and allow us to become even more, you know, vibrant in the future. Um, I still, you know, I live in a place where uh, Fusion has brought us uh, Korean taco trucks and where, uh, you know, one of the most dynamic corporations, Apple, was... uh, started by the, you know, foster child of Syrian immigrants. This is, you know, a, uh, uh, a kind of a, you know, sales pitch for diversity and inclusion as a way to drive a dynamic economy forward. I,
0: I saw some article in the New York Times uh, uh, saying that the resistance uh, was over. It's, they were talking about farm, farmers in uh, California saying the resistance is now over. Uh, what were they talking about, and is that true?
1: Uh, I have a feeling that resistance is just beginning. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, you know, the book title, State of Resistance, mm-hmm. is of course meant to evoke California as a state of resistance, the state that declared itself to, uh, you know, be the sword in the side of Trump's immigration policy, Trump's climate policy, etc. But, you know, a lot of the book is actually about what is the state of resistance, in the United States. And my belief is the following. I think what people have recognized is that this is uh, too important a political moment to just be political. That is, rather than trying to transform this immediately into elections, how do we sort of really appeal to people's values? The people who marched for the women's marches uh, were not just Democrats or Republicans are necessarily interested in policy per se. They were just interested in people treating each other decently. The people who have uh, opposed the recent uh, enforcement actions around the border have many different views about what a good immigration system would look like, but they do think that we should be implementing the law with decency and with humanity and with a concern for keeping families intact. And I think that uh the resistance is in some sense just beginning and i think the really crucial thing will be able will be trying to move it from just resisting what's going on to try to think about what an alternative looks like and trying to be positive about implementing that alternative in a way that will make a difference in people's lives you know if you just reject trump that's mm-hmm. not enough because there's a lot of social forces of anxiety around demographic change uncertainty about your economic position in the world, willingness to be getting all of your news in a silo, uh, that have generated the Trump phenomena, and we need to be addressing some of those fundamental causes as well.
0: Yeah, uh, uh, keeping your eye on the social com- compact, as you say in the book. Yeah, very important. Yeah, which is something you don't even hear about anymore. It would be a, a strange, if you asked probably some younger people what social compact means, they probably wouldn't know.
1: And yet, the idea of a social compact, a sort of intergenerational commitment and a commitment that stretches across geographies and and groups has been absolutely crucial to the United States. You know, I often think about the fact, I mentioned that my dad was an immigrant, and, you know, a generation later his son is a full professor at the University of Southern California with an endowed chair, And when I talk to audiences, I try to say, you know, "Ah, that's a great story. That's an American story. It's the kind of individual story we all like to celebrate. But that story is only possible because in the 1930s, when my dad had no papers, he had a union that defended his rights at work. When he came out of the uh, war, there was a GI Bill that meant that he could go to a community college and learn about electricity. He only had a sixth-grade education. But when he did that he wound up being able to move from being a janitor to an air conditioner repairman and my family was able to go from being poor to being working class and i went to public schools because they were decent because we were investing in them and i got a chance to go to the university because it was affirmative action take a chance on a kid like me that did not fit the typical profile and the american story as much as it is about individual initiative and getting ahead and working hard it's also about the social compact, the agreements we have to invest in one another, to make sure that we've got a public education system that will allow people to thrive, to make sure that we're delivering benefits for veterans and others, that we're trying to make sure that the system is structured to give everyone a fair shot. And that is a that emerges from a sense of our commitment to one another and a commitment in particular to the next generation. When there's a emergency in... Texas, as a result of a hurricane, we don't just say that the Texans have to clean it up completely themselves. Um, We understand that we owe something to people who live in Texas because they're part of who we are. And I think a lot of that has eroded. And, you know, the really key thing, people talk these days, Michael, about how we're a divided nation. But we're a nation that's being actively divided. That is, people are trying to separate us from one another, trying to... He wrote that social compact, and that's really the fundamental thing that I think will uh, bring us together in terms of policy is when we're brought together in terms of our sense of common fate.
0: Yeah, well, yeah I, th- I think about, you know, the, the defunding of a public school system, which we uh, here in Wisconsin is going great guns, thanks to our governor, and, and started making teachers into the enemy. I mean, that, I, it, it was, that was unthinkable. You know, I mean, because that was the, the, the wonderful opportunity for a lot of kids uh, growing up who came from either poor background or immigrant background so through the schools. And they could, you know, and and but, you know, the Trump, the, 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 this Trump, if it's a movement, I don't know. But he's managed to do the If you did the opposite of everything Trump has been doing, you would be doing a lot of good in the world. But they're they're actually like you know, the EPA is actually destroying the environment. Education yeah. Department is destroying public education. It, it's, it's kind of amazing.
1: Yeah, it is. You know, two things. One is that, you know, public education does the things you, and I said, provides a platform and support for poor kids, immigrant kids, working-class kids to be able to get ahead. But the other thing that public school has traditionally done is provide an opportunity for people from different backgrounds right. to go to the same schools. And to get to know one another in a way that develops empathy, and that helps to reinforce the social compact you know it's a lot easier to cut somebody's uh benefits off uh when you've never had a chance to know somebody who's been on public benefits and what difference it's made for them to be able to move ahead in their life. It's much easier to say that anybody who's come to the country uh with their uh you know without the proper documentation um is someone who should be booted out and penalized harder to do if you know somebody who's actually been through that situation so I think that public schools are not just important for the platform they provide for economic opportunity but they're really an essential part of a democratic society of learning about who we are and building the ties between who we are and yeah if you look at what the current administration is doing it's almost like they try to ask what are the things that stitch us together and allow us to be sustainable. And how do we take them apart? Um, you know, is it a movement? Gosh, that's a great question. In a way, it's more like a spasm than a movement. Uh, you know, I would say the evangelical right that came up through the churches—that uh, was much more of a movement. It was held together by values. There was a base for it. There was a lot of there was an intellectual infrastructure for it. Some people might not like uh, what its public policy prescriptions were, but it's hard to argue that it wasn't really a grassroots movement with a lot of elements of what people who study movements would think to be able to constitute a movement. This is more like a disorganized spasm of anger about the change that's going on. And it's then been concentrated and associated with a single individual. Um, And it's...
0: It's pretty scary. Yeah, but you, 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 uh, it hasn't been answered to my understanding of, of uh, who actually has engineered this. I can't believe it's Donald Trump because I think he could care less. To tell you the truth.
1: But, well, uh, there's, you know, um, it's too, it's
0: too perfect.
1: <laughs> it's it's quite uh, perfect in a way. But the the thing that's fascinating about it is whether or not it's a uh, thing that's become a little more dangerous than people who want it to be. Have thought it would be, so for example, the single achievement of the uh the Trump administration so far has been a gigantic uh, tax cut that uh is just a major boon for corporations and it will be frozen into place for some time um it's uh you know certainly alleviated some taxes disproportionately on the rich, but really the biggest benefits were to corporations so you know, has this been a sort of Trojan horse to get in some of those kind of policies of uh, deregulation and corporate tax cuts, et cetera? Uh, seems like it. But be careful what you wish for, because you know what people forget is that the Republican part you know, California is the state that generated Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon. It's a state that was reliably Republican for in presidential elections for a number of years. And actually had a lot of Republican, uh, governors, uh, and, uh, leaders. Um, we do not have a single statewide elected Republican in office right now. We have a two-thirds, sometimes we're one vote short, uh, majority in both the state assembly and the state senate. Uh, the Republican party has a lower registration than do not declare in the state of California, and it's largely irrelevant to state politics. Why? Because by walking off the extreme edge with regard to xenophobia uh, and race, and not offering real solutions to people's economic problems, but instead whining about how the government is, you know, this whole thing, and you see it in your state of Wisconsin, with like, oh, we've got to cut taxes. Your state hasn't done really well by cutting taxes, nor has Kansas. California raised taxes. Our economy is growing faster than the national average, and it moved up from being the seventh-largest economy in the world to the fifth-largest economy in the world. So I think if you look forward, uh, this kind of politics really decimated the strength of a traditionally strong Republican Party in the state of California. Wonder what's going to happen at a national level as the demographics continue to change and as anger continues to grow. Yeah,
0: speaking of Wisconsin, I, I miss the old Republicans. You know, we, we go back and forth in state government. Governor Tommy Thompson, Republican, like the guy. He was our—I didn't agree with all of his policies, but they—they weren't very extreme. You know, and uh, and we have a history of a of, 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 of type of Republicans who are who are kind of okay. You know. They made good neighbors. I'll tell you that. I'd rather have a Republican neighbor than you know, if you got a problem. That you know, in the old days, that's the guy who would come to your your, your aid. Uh, but now there's 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 some different creature that uh, that is inhabiting that world.
1: Yes, I mean I think you're seeing a lot of those folks now begin to abandon the Republican Party. Mm. But yeah, I mean in California, uh, there's the mayor from in Fresno, Ashley Swarns, Republican, she's now running the community foundation there. You know, some policy disagreements. Really great person. Uh, You know, honest, uh, straightforward. Uh, She had a chance at it almost one statewide, I think, because of that kind of reputation. There are a number of others. You know, in national politics as well. But it's becoming an increasingly rare bunch. uh, With so many people again willing to uh, tie their fortunes to this polarization thinking that the short term gains they will get from it. You know, Pete Wilson, who was the governor of California in the nineties, who supported Prop one eighty seven, was a pretty moderate mayor of San Diego. He had been uh in favor of affirmative action. Um, he had been in favor uh he had not been well known for being anti immigrant. Um he actually, I think, really was an opportunist. Who thought that, you know, there's this rising anti immigrant sentiment, I can take advantage of it and I will be able to uh, get reelected. And he did get reelected, but he also managed to mobilize a lot of Latinos who were uh, lawful permanent residents who had not yet naturalized to naturalize and begin to vote at higher rates than even the U.S. born. And that really wound up helping to change politics in California. The interesting thing about the Trump phenomenon is that Trump is like Wilson in one way uh, that is really trying to ride this A.D. immigrant sentiment. But he actually really believes it, uh, or at least seems to, the enthusiasm with which he brings forward um, his uh, concerns about immigrants, his declaration that you know there might be two sides in terms of white supremacy, uh, the racists and the non-racists at Charleston, I mean, I think there's a a real depth of uh, sincerity there, maybe kind of evil sincerity uh, that uh, is
0: quite frightening. Yeah, and once again, I think of Wisconsin, you know, the progressive movement of Wisconsin. They were Republicans. Yes. And uh, what the heck?
1: <laughs> Same thing in California. I do want to think that one thing. You know, in the in the book, we uh, paid for two quotes from songs. Uh, apparently, you have to pay when you do that, Michael. Uh, and, uh, right now, I
0: owe a lot of people.
1: <laughs> uh, so one of them was from Bob Dylan, uh, but sure. the other was from uh, uh, Gil Scott Heron, uh, sort of a jazz poet and in many ways a precursor to hip-hop, mm-hmm. in which he said that uh, you alone have the wisdom to change the world, uh, m- to make it what uh, the world want to be, what you want to see, uh, once you understand that there ain't no such thing as a Superman, and the reason why we put that in is kind of a warning. uh people have you know thought that with the election of Obama, they were elected a Superman, that all of the hard work of making change and changing minds would be in the hands of this articulate, handsome mm-hmm. well spoken individual who would somehow move us past our racial divides and help us come together. We put our faith in that Superman. And, of course, that didn't happen, uh, not so much because Obama had many shortcomings, but because, you know, there's no such thing as a superman. Fairly similarly, there's no such thing as a super ogre. Uh, while Trump might represent sort of the worst of many impulses, he's representing some impulses, and those impulses are deeply embedded in the U.S. electorate. And So the kind of hard work Of challenging people around their fears around immigration and demographic change, you know, there's no conceivable way in which a coal miner's job is threatened by a Mexican immigrant. Uh, There's not a lot of Mexicans rushing West Virginia saying, "I'd like to get in on some of that black lung sweepstakes." Um, So, you know, we, you know, really need to do the work that gets that not just an individual and whether or not that individual has kind of taken the party off the rails, but what is it about that party that made it so open to that? Uh, I think it's a party that's been spending a lot of time trying with its Southern strategy to appeal with a dog whistle to race. They didn't expect somebody would walk in with a bullhorn. Uh, and, you know, we really need to get at some of the fundamental long-term community-building work that will make
0: a difference. book is State of Resistance. Manuel Pastor, thank you.